0: Greetings again, everyone. What a relief to know that the Democratic candidate for the presidency of the United States did not inhale. I think that that removes any objection that millions of people may have had, and that takes a tremendous amount of character, therefore, I really don't have an awful lot of doubt about what he will get the nomination. Can you imagine somebody smoking marijuana and going, and not inhaling. What character this man had? I didn't inhale. I would love to have a voice transplant given from some of our CBS, NBC newscasters to some of our presidential candidates so they wouldn't talk to us like that. Like one little fellow that sort of talked like that to us, his name was... You know, it wasn't Dukakis, that was before. Gee, what was his name? Paul Oshongas. I could not believe when I listened to this guy... And then of course there's Jerry Brown. I recall when he took the famous country western singer, both of them and married on about a six-week safari to Africa, so at least the guy has good taste. But you know when you start thinking about some of the presidential timber, if that's the word to use, uh, Mr. George Bush who was in the White House today, his vice president, no comment, other people who are running for office, and we're going to be hearing it from now to November, And we're looking at what appears to be a sort of a carnival charade of men who believe they are qualified to lead the superpower of the world now that the Soviet Union has virtually disintegrated and the United States of America emerged as, in a sense, for a temporary little time in the sun, the sole superpower of the world. When I think back to the days of my boyhood, looking at the pattern on the old rug in Eugene, Oregon, listening to our old Zenith radio, to the likes of Sir Winston Churchill from BBC in London over shortwave, or listening to the fireside chats from FDR. When I remember the likes of people who have come and gone in the past, who were men of great capacity, men of great intellect, men of great education, I can cite certainly the founding fathers of the United States who were not politicians. There wasn't a politician among them in one sense because they were all men who wore several hats. A general of a militia who became a kind of a, which became a homegrown army, became our very first president. And if you look at the parallel with Israel, you will find that in 1948 when Israel became a nation, there was not such a thing for many, many years as a professional politician. There were doctors, lawyers, physicians, archaeologists, writers. There were people who were professional. And they had to pick up the reins of government and make it work. But they were not professional politicians. I want to turn to the first chapter of the book of Luke and read to you a scripture that is sometimes parroted by little children at Christmas time. They memorize this verse, and they come out on the platform in the fifth grade, and the teacher is beaming, and the parents are there. And the little child is standing with other little children dressed like angels. And there is the scene of Mary and the manger and the little Christ child, probably a little rubber baby there and some straw. And the little child will come out and pipe in a little high voice. Verse 30 of Luke 1, Fear not, Mary, for you have found favor with God. How many times have you been to school when you were a child and heard this kind of a play? For behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great. "...and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end." To Methodists, and they number in their many millions, to Baptists, same comment, millions more, to Catholics who merely talk about the end of the world, to all of the mainstream fundamentalists who believe you go to heaven when you die, I suppose they are looking forward to their first tour of Christ's private quarters in heaven, when he will round a corner and say, We now enter the archives, and let me show you the throne of my father David. It is right there. Isn't it priceless? It's wonderful. A few nicks on it, but we managed to uh, do a little repair work after we got it up here. Start to think about that for a minute. What is the answer to this scripture in the minds not only of millions of church-going professing Christians who don't really read the Bible or study the Bible or know much about the Bible, but in the minds of the theologians who allegedly do. How do they explain that? Is Christ up there in heaven wearing a lot of buttons and badges? Is he like a man at a VFW rally? Is he like a man, an American veteran of, of foreign wars or something, that has all kinds of little badges and pins and all kinds of medals on his chest? And Jesus is up there with his archives and his collection an item of collectibles the throne of his father David a decoration for him you know we take this scripture for granted I oftentimes wonder what is the real mystery in many people's minds when the Apostle Paul said in 1st Corinthians 15 behold I show you a mystery we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. Do we take that literally? I think to many people, the mystery is what happens next. The mystery is the entire process of the second coming of Christ, and then what happens next. Perhaps we ought to preach a full sermon sometime about the second half of Christ's ministry and shock a lot of people with, for example, the last few chapters of Isaiah, the entire book of Obadiah, several references in the book of Daniel, that clearly state that the masses of this world will never have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ of Nazareth until after the second coming of Christ and before the actual literal beginning of the millennium. Because Christ was cut off in the midst of the week after a three-and-one-half-year ministry, and he has yet another three-and-one-half-year ministry of witness to conduct after his coming. Did you know that there are going to be many wars? Did you know there is going to be great loss of life? Did you know that there are going to be some of the largest battles in the history of all mankind that take place after the second coming of Christ? Only if you study some of those prophecies, especially the last few chapters of Ezekiel before you get into the picture of the temple, do you come to understand that. I want you to realize how rare it is that there are perhaps a few tens of thousands, I doubt if there are 200,000 human beings on the face of the earth, and you can do a little arithmetic right quickly and figure out what is that percentage of even the American population, who understand that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is coming to this earth to inherit a literal throne which exists, which sits right now probably locked up very carefully in a little nook somewhere in Westminster Abbey in Great Britain, that he is going to inherit a throne from a lineage of human beings who have sat on that throne as it was transported from one country to another three different times, from Palestine to ancient Ireland, to Scotland, down to England, where it will remain, as the Bible says in the 25th chapter of Ezekiel, until he come, whose right it is. And I wonder how many of us take seriously, we've heard dozens of sermons on it, my father for over 40 years emphasized practically nothing else but government, and that we're going to rule and talk about housewives ruling over their kitchens and families being a little kingdom and the father is ruling over the children and so on, so that People, I think, in the worldwide church were hearing so much about ruling that they just began to go to sleep every time he began to mention the word. Ruling over something or somebody. Well, let's ask why. Let's ask what is most urgent. What is the most pressing issue that we face on a day-to-day basis as a country? We are the world's largest debtor nation our infrastructure is decaying and sagging so that there are literally hundreds of billions that are needed to repair roadways, bridges, the infrastructure of cities. I've even seen television documentaries on the sewage systems and the water systems and the electrical systems of gigantic megalopolises like New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, Detroit, etc. And they will unearth old pipes beneath the street, beneath some of these buildings like the Empire State Building that has been there since before I was born. And they will look at the rust and how the old pipes are almost totally closed off with rust and all the filth and the slime and the little bodies that are growing in there and these cities that are not inhabitable, actually. Now, it would there would be a litany here with which I would have to deal. It would take literally four hours to even begin to discuss health care and health care fraud, tax and tax fraud, government usury, drugs, crime, government scandals, the SNL fraud, all of the other things that are going on in government. Then if you look at street crime in our country, and that four, more than four out of 10 American families in any given year are afflicted in some way or another by crime. I saw an incredible, not a home video, but an actual professional video just this last week. Someone had gone to a South Dallas neighborhood and it had actually been inside just an average house and had turned on a black-and-white video camera and there were gunshots going off like it was a movie of some kind and it showed people furtively running around the streets outside in a neighborhood in South Dallas where there are shootings and murders practically every night now you and I both know about all of this we know about pollution we know about air water and solid pollution we know about overpopulation we know about business and bank failures we know about the government scandals. I was watching a documentary recently. I think a little bit of it about J. Edgar Hoover was continuing just last night. It seemed to me like it had been on two different nights in a row. And J. Edgar Hoover's files on John Kennedy. I did not really realize that John Kennedy had been married before he ever married Jacqueline. And on the very year that he married Jacqueline, the Archbishop managed to bring through an annulment. I also didn't know that as a young lieutenant in the Navy he was actually having a liaison with a German spy, that there was a very good-looking 40-ish woman who was known and tabbed by the FBI that came to this country who was Swedish in origin, who was actually a personal friend of Adolf Hitler. But there are lots of things I didn't know about one of the men most revered as the President of the United States. As I've said jocularly to be certain, in the resurrection millions of Americans are going to run up to John Kennedy in the resurrection and say, did you really get it on with Marilyn Monroe? And the answer from the files that I saw is yes, but then why bother? We could go right down the line of every man who has ever been the president of the United States and prove that like every other human being, even as Elijah said, he is a man of like clay and of like passions with all the rest of us. Is there any more urgent? necessity than finding the key to proper government. Now comes the greatest myth that is swallowed by millions of Americans. They believe if we could just get lucky enough, just this once, to get the right man in the White House, boom, all of our problems are over. He will take care of health care. He'll take care of all of us. We'll all have a better home to live in. We'll all make more money. Crime will disappear. He'll get rid of all of the guns. We'll be a strong nation with a tiny little military. He'll bring all the military back. Let the other people have it. We'll be isolationist, but we'll be better off. Why, there are millions of Americans who believe that. They're out there wearing buttons and shouting, Yay, Zongus, or Yay, Jerry Brown. And they believe if we could just luck out and get the right man, as long as he didn't inhale in the White House, that we will have right government. In the ninth chapter of the book of Isaiah is a prophecy about Jesus Christ of Nazareth. In verse 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. What is that, an epaulet? What is that, a button, a badge, a ribbon? What is that, some more of his archives, some more of his curios, some more of his collectibles? How does a Methodist answer that? When and where would an average Methodist tell you Jesus ever ruled over any one or anything? Think about it. You really don't know the answer to that, do you? He didn't rule as a carpenter. He said, If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. So it says, As a sheep is dumb before the shearer. So he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb to the slaughter. He opened not his mouth. The bruised reed shall he not break, neither shall he lift up his voice in the street. He came as a humble carpenter, and he meekly endured the terrible punishment that was set before him. He didn't rule over the temple. He didn't rule over the Pharisees. He didn't rule the Sadducees. He didn't even really manage to control his own brothers too well. They were taunting him on that last Feast of Tabernacles before he was crucified. What did Christ rule? Was there an increase of his government? Was the government upon his shoulder? Well, what does the average Methodist think? You know, we take it for granted. We've heard these sermons by years and years and by the dozens and by the hundreds that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is coming to govern and to rule this world with a rod of iron. But do we see it literally and do we believe it in the sense that it is so realistic to us that we see him ruling over Georgia and Alabama and Detroit, Michigan and New Zealand and Hawaiian Islands and, and the real, literal places on this earth, including Smith County, Texas? Is Christ going to rule Smith County, Texas? If he does, is he going to do anything about judges in Smith County, Texas? Is he going to do anything about the legal system in Smith County, Texas? Is he going to do anything about recidivism or revolving door justice? Let's see what the Bible says. There are actually three chapters that flow right here in the book of Isaiah that say something about that, and they're in a kind of a chronological sequence. The government shall be upon his shoulder. That means the responsibility of rulership. It doesn't mean an epaulet, and it doesn't mean one of his little collectibles that he takes Methodists through to show them up in heaven. And his name shall be called Wonderful or Marvelous, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, a little bit of a clue about what lies out beyond the millennium and the great white throne judgment there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the eternal of hosts will perform this. Where? When? We know the answer to that, don't we? On this earth at the time of the second coming of Christ. In our current number of 20th Century Watch, Mr. Van Stinson has written an article, Is This the End Time? And we've written other articles along that line in past times. I think you would be well served to read it because a lot of people, especially those who ought to be emphasizing the witness and warning message, the first commission of the church, are backing away from it and are not even paying any attention to biblical prophecy at a time when more biblical prophecy is falling into place in any time in my experience in 38 years of preaching the Bible. Right now, what is happening in Europe, the disintegration of the Soviet Empire, Eastern Europe, the forging together of the United States of Europe, the diminution of American strength and willpower, the moving into that vacuum of power by Germany and Japan, it is all so absolutely, vividly perfect in line with what I remember studying and learning in Ambassador College in 1952, 53, and 4. And yet there is only one voice that I know of that is out there telling people that and others who have the megawattage and the money are not doing it. Notice a little later in verse 14. Well, I'll read up to it, verse 13. For the people turn not unto him that smite them, neither do they seek the eternal of hosts. Therefore the Lord will cut off from Israel head and tail, branch and rush, high and low, that means, in one day. The ancient and the honorable, he is the head, and the prophet that teacheth lies, he is the tail. We won't belabor that issue, but I sort of Get a little twang out of that. Verse 16, for the leaders of this people cause them to err, and they that are led of them are destroyed. It is the leadership. It is the political leadership. It is the spiritual leadership that cause them to be destroyed. Therefore, the Lord shall have no joy in their young men, neither shall he have mercy on their fatherless and widows, for everyone is an hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And you can look at the expressions of the wrath of God. Now notice chapter 10 and verse 1. And think of what you know about the law. That is the law of the land. That is the law that has to do with divorce. With estate taxes. With federal income tax. With state income tax with sales tax and franchise tax, with hidden tax and all other forms of tax like luxury tax and gasoline tax. And then you look at the health care fraud of hospitals issuing certificates which actually send their own private security guards into cities outside of the state to perform an arrest to bring a person who is perfectly normal back inside a hospital and to give him treatment that is worth $10.95 against his will and then bill the insurance company for about a million dollars. Have you seen some of those television documentaries? Have you seen criminals being put on the street who are guilty of murder? Have you seen people literally getting away with murder? Chapter 10, verse 1, Woe unto them that decree sinful, illegal decrees, and that right, that's making the law, grievousness, which they have prescribed. That's evil, rotten, unrighteous, illegal, unlawful, sin, and yet it is written into the books, and they have prescribed it. How? Why? To do what? To turn aside the needy from judgment, and to take away the right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey why is it that a system that is so complex and so technically intricate that is tied in into the fed to the tax structure to the printing of government money that is worth only what people think it is worth for a short period of time so long as that confidence game is still in vogue and otherwise has no actual intrinsic value whatsoever and is not even pinned to metal which people used to covet because they think it's pretty and they can wear it as jewelry but when you get right down to it metal has no value either but how is it that when shrinking interest rates Make an awful lot of people very ecstatically excited because they can borrow a little more easily and maybe some young people getting started can have the American dream and go out and get themselves a home and they can get it at an interest rate around 8.2, 8.5, 8.7. Now it's creeping back up, I guess, to 9, 9 and a quarter, edging toward 10 again. But at the very same time, tens of millions of americans who are elderly rosie the riveter and her husband or maybe he died a long time ago and she would moved in a little white cottage somewhere and it's all she's got in her nest egg and it was a great big front page on Barrons not long ago that showed a fox and there was a nest and there were some eggs and that fox was just slavering and he was eating those eggs and it was talking about the voracious devouring of nest eggs That millions of Americans living on fixed income were experiencing this terrible drop in their income because they're living on the interest earned through bank CDs and various investments and the like. How does that happen? So on the one scale, it helps some people and just kills a lot of other people. Is that a right system? Is it a good system? Should it be revamped from top to bottom? Now, if you want to know somebody that I would almost like to see just for the fun of it all, I don't think for one minute, because I'm not naive enough to think Ross Perot could get any better job done than anybody else has done in the last several decades, but at least the guy says some things, and he does some things that make a lot of sense. If you read his book about wings of eagles, when he had his men over there and the Iranians grabbed them, he mounted his own rescue operation. He went and got himself a Marine Corps colonel. He went and got his own aircraft. He got his own private band of guys, and they went over there and they got them out of Iran. If he'd have been in the White House when the Pueblo was taken, he'd have gone over there and got it back. But the Pueblo's still there today, isn't it? We never got it back from North Korea. A Ross Perot is some kind of a man. Now, I'm not, you know, a Ross Perot fan. I don't know that much about him, but I'll tell you this. He towers over the other people that I see running for some office in government. All right, we all know that they are writing illegal laws and grievousness to turn aside the needy from judgment, and it says that they may rob the fatherless. And what will you do in the day of visitation and in the desolation which shall come from far? To whom will you flee for help? Where will you leave your glory? Without me they shall bow down unto the prisoners, and they shall fall under the slain. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still." Isn't it interesting? in the culmination of this prophecy indicting both Judah and Israel because Isaiah deals with both. He cites that the Assyrian nation will become the rod in in God's hand the rod of God's anger like a A whip or a rod, meaning more like a switch or a willow branch, to chastise his people and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. I will send him against an hypocritical nation, and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire in the streets. In the 11th chapter of Isaiah, again, it begins with Christ. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Eternal shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Eternal. They shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Eternal. He shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with fairness for the meek of the earth and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, a metaphor meaning he will give the command, and by great divine fiat, or miracles, it will be done. And with the breath of his lips shall he execute, carry out the death penalty on those who richly deserve it. Now, you and I know that in various states there has not been an execution for 18, 20, 21, 22 years. Oh, there have been many executions, But that's the people dying in the streets. I saw a statistic, and this is many years old, so I'm sure it's worse than that by far today. Many, many years ago, I was saying on the radio, and I haven't been on radio for a number of years now, even though I'm about to uh, begin again, I think, for the sake of some of the programs here and there, very few of them, that there were more murders in Houston, Texas, in any one given year than in all of Great Britain and all of Scandinavia put together. I think the same thing holds true for Dallas-Fort Worth, or Chicago, or New York, or Los Angeles any one of these American cities, there are more murders than several other countries all put together. Almighty God is going to straighten out this world, and the only way it can be straightened out, because it is absolutely beyond management. It is far too late for even a group of the most brilliant managers to get in there and fine-tune the economy and to find out exactly how to set the, you know, the health care system, Medicare and Medicaid, set it aright, how to deal with pension funds and how to deal with government T-bills and investments, how to deal with the terrible loss of money because of an imbalance in exports and imports. You couldn't have a team of 20, and every one of them have the intelligence of Henry Kissinger and the stature of a Winston Churchill or an FDR, and say, now I can breathe a sigh of relief, I know that America is going to be all right and the next 10, next 20 years are going to be the best years of our lives. Forget it. Forget it. As a matter of fact, anyone who would believe that is actually defying God, believing a lie, and believing and putting His stakes and His trust and His faith in Satan's world, in this world that is not God's world, and in hoping and praying that a government that is not of God, but a man-made government, based upon all of these illegal, unlawful, unrighteous, and false principles, is going to somehow survive for much longer. How great was the government of Rome? Rome lasted more than ten times the length of time the United States of America will last in world history. Ancient Tyre lasted longer than we will last. We're not quite so great as we think we are. But what is there that you can see of Rome today? Shattered shards, broken columns, collapsed roofs, nothing but ruins, and you can go and you can look at them and take pictures of these old buildings that have long since tumbled down and the empire was gone long, long ago. He says that he will begin to govern "...with righteousness, judging the poor, reprove with equity the meek of the earth, and he will slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb." I won't read all of that because we've done it many, many times. It describes conditions on the earth and says, "...they," verse 9, meaning all these animals, poisonous snakes, ravenous tigers, all kinds of meat-eating predators, shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. There are not tigers and lions and there are not puff adders and there are not diamondback rattlers up in heaven. This is on the earth. For the earth, no matter what Mrs. E.G. White said, no matter what the Methodists say or the Baptists say or Church of Christ or anybody else says, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the eternal as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, And who is on the earth? Who shall stand for an ensign, like a banner, like a rallying cry? Who will stand as an ensign of the people? To it shall the Gentiles read, Russia, China, India, Bangladesh, Indonesia, the Philippines, North and South Asia, North and South America, not North America, but Central and South America, all of Africa. So many dozens and hundreds of tribes and groups of people, you can't even begin to count them all. And they will finally seek Jesus Christ. When? At the beginning of his kingdom. At the beginning of the millennium. Think about it. If I thought that we were supposed to reach every one of the African nations, all of Asia, where a quarter of the population of the world lives in just one great nation called China, with over 200 different dialects and probably a million concepts of what God is, and we were supposed to have someone who were to set up offices and publish literature and get on the radio, which you can't because it's government-dominated anyway, in all of China? Am I supposed to reach China by going to China at the invitation of maybe Rotarians International and go to Beijing and have a meeting with 23 people and tell them that a strong hand from some place is going to solve the problems of the world and then come back and write a great big one-page ad in the Wall Street Journal and tell my constituents back here who supported me and paid for my trip over there, I preach the gospel to China. China's received a warning. Can I do that? Is that what I'm supposed to do? If I thought that this work had to reach all of Africa, all of China, all of the teeming millions of Japan, all of Malaysia, Indonesia, Bangladesh, and you could just go on and name countries, Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, Peru, Bolivia, name them, it doesn't matter. We're supposed to reach them all in their tongues and their languages? Here we are performing a very small work in comparison to many others that you could name many of which I think are absolute frauds, and yet they are multi-million dollar operations with audiences numbering up into the many millions and, of course, sometimes on hundreds, if not even thousands, of television and radio stations. We are minuscule in comparison. And what is their message? It's about a false Christ. It's about false healings. It's a marketing technique. It's get a point of contact. And put your hand on my hand on the television set. It's a carnival sideshow. It's a clown performing for them. And there are many of them. And the various attorney generals at various states, one of them tried that out in California without success on one occasion, although it wasn't that kind of an organization he was after, but he was certainly after some people who had infiltrated that organization and had their hands on the money supply. But there are others who are in trouble today with a similar situation, where they are actually making merchandise of God's people as the Bible said they would. No. Jesus Christ plainly said, didn't he, in Matthew the 10th chapter, You shall not have gone over the cities of Israel until Jesus Christ of Nazareth stands on this earth again. Now, that couldn't have meant those people then. Even as all prophecy is dual, so there was a double or a dual meaning of the 24th chapter of Matthew in the Olivet Prophecy. And when he said, This generation shall not pass, but all these things come to pass, you see what happened at the desecration, desolation, destruction of Jerusalem in 71 A.D., but the bulk of those prophecies dealing with Christ's second coming have never occurred. He says he will be an ensign to the people, and to it shall the Gentiles, and we're talking here about billions of human beings, seek, and his rest, always a type of the millennium. The fourth chapter of Hebrews leaves... No doubt about this rest into which we are to enter. And Joshua, when he made his famous statement when they entered into the promised land, probably on a weekly Sabbath that you read of in the fifth chapter of Joshua, and they entered into the promised land into what is typified as rest, a millennial rest. The seventh-day Sabbath typifies that rest. His rest, that is the millennium, his kingdom, shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day. When? When the earth is full of the knowledge of the eternal. When Christ is on the earth, when Christ is an ensign gathering Gentiles to the light of the truth of God, that the Lord will set his hand again, the second time, to recover the remnant of his people which shall be left. Who are his people? Israel, the ten tribes, the house of Judah. Where are they? Assyria, wherever modern Assyria is. Egypt, we think we know where that is and from Paphros, and Cush, and Elam, or Cush and Put, and Shinar, and Hamath, ancient lands around the Middle East, North Africa, India, over in what is today Iraq and Iran, and from the coastlands, the far shores beyond the gates of Hercules of the sea. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations, and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, Every time, if you wanted to do a little Bible study of your own, and you take the name of Israel, and you deal with prophecies having to do with the second coming of Christ, and every single time the two are mentioned together, Israel is in a condition of wretched captivity, scattered all over the earth, only a remnant of them, and their strong indication may be a mere 10% of the populations of Belgium, Holland, France, Norway, Denmark, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, Great Britain, Ireland, the United States, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, one in ten, ten percent of those populations scattered in nations all over the earth, and Christ is going to gather them to the Middle East, to the seat of His new government. He will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed, they were always dispersed, the diaspora is the book, you know, of James, to whom James wrote, The Dispersed of the Jews, From the Four Corners of the Earth. The envy of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. So anti-Semitism will be no more. It won't be allowed. It'll be outlawed. Ephraim will not envy Judah, and Judah will not vex Ephraim. And if you look at World War II and thereafter, at the complicity, the absolute incredible complicity, of not only Great Britain, but of the United States, yes and even of Switzerland, yes and even of the International Red Cross. You ought to read a book called The Holocaust Conspiracy that has a swastika made of the flags of those nations, the United States, Great Britain, Sweden, I think a couple of others, but especially the nation of Switzerland and the Red Cross, the International Red Cross, which originally was, you know, originated there and headquartered there. and the. The fact that they were complicit in the death camps and turned a deaf eye not only by inaction but more than that. And this is quite an indictment. It's most, one of the most historically documented and well researched books you will ever read. And it actually shows the tragedy of hundreds of thousands of those Jews who desperately wanted to get out of Germany, were trying to get out, and there wasn't a single nation that would take them. And time after time they would apply to this nation and the other nation in the West. Can we please emigrate? Can we get in there? Will you please let us come there? They would not. They shut the gate. They turned a deaf, a blind eye and a deaf ear to what was going on, and we know that six million of them died. But they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines, Palestinians. You can read because actually, Philistia, Palestine, comes from the same origin, and the Palestinians are the Philistines of today. Toward the west, they shall spoil them in the east together. "...they shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab." And you could go to the book of Obadiah, and you can read of how God says something to the nation of Turkey. And he says, "...you should not have stood in the way when my people were trying to escape." And there may be something there about the Turkish nation, once again, capturing, or at least not aiding, but doing the same thing those nations I mentioned did to the Jews during World War II. And in the next round of destruction in the Middle East, which is going to come, a massive war, a combined Arab attack by the king of the south this time, not yet identified, but no doubt in the wings and alive today, is going to destroy Tel Aviv and Haifa, and millions of Jews are going to die. Now, many remnants of that nation when it is destroyed and occupied, are going to try to flee. And God says in the book of Obadiah that he is going to punish Edom, and Edom is Esau. And if that is not Turkey, and we've always believed it is because the sub-tribes that are mentioned there are found there, Timon, the Ottoman Turks, Timonai is mentioned, and there are place names that are important in history. And my father thought so, and many other biblical commentaries think so that Turkey may well be the Edomites. But if they are not, they are then some of the Arab stock in the Iraq and Iran and some of those areas. Iranians are, of course, Persians are not Arabs, even though they are of the Islamic faith or religion. And God shows, believe it or not, that human, physical Israelites, who have been captives in wretched condition, are going to come through that land and are going to absolutely destroy it and God is going to allow it to be done. Read the book of Obadiah. It is a blood curdling story. Look at its time setting. It takes place after the second coming of Christ. As Christ is regathering those people, they come through that land, and they're going to absolutely murder every human male over twelve years of age. A lot of people have a kind of a pie in the sky, uh, away in the manger, or way beyond the rainbow, or Betty by. Idea about the second coming of Christ. Christ is going to come, all will be well. That's the end of everything. There won't be any job to do, no straightening out, no rebuilding, no nothing. Why, there will be so many wars when you really begin to read of all of it. All the things that are going to happen after Christ comes for three and one half years, he is going to perform the mightiest ministry in the history of the universe. When so many times the number of people who have ever heard the gospel from that time until then will begin hearing it, And members of the very kingdom of God will actually portray it and will convey it and will actually gather these leaders and bring them there. And Christ is going to witness to the Gentiles. Notice the end of this chapter because it is a real mind-boggling statement that is made, something that is so great that is going to obliterate the original Exodus. He says that they will lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. Bad news, I guess, for some of the Arab states around Israel, but they are going to be subservient to Judah in the beginning of the kingdom of God. And the Eternal shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea, and with his mighty wind shall he shake his hand over the river, and shall smite it in the seven streams, and make men go over dry shod. Apparently, the eastern end of the Mediterranean is going to be raised by a giant earthquake, and there is an earthquake that accompanies Christ's coming. And it says that the Mount of Olives is going to cleave in two. Read that in Zechariah 14. Now, many years ago, let me just portray something to you and see if you can get it in your mind so that you conceive of what I'm about to explain to you. We built a beautiful stream in Ambassador College that came flowing down from the upper level by Mayfair, the girls' dormitory, and just flowed underneath the most gorgeous bridges. And we had big rocks we placed in there. And we even had cold water and I don't remember how we got it cold enough to put trout in there, but there were trout that big in that stream. It was a lovely thing, and it recirculated. But originally, we had drawn up the plans. My dad and I had gone over them, and we'd had the landscape architects and the other architect there, and we'd even approved the plans, but it just proved to be too expensive. We wanted the stream to originate indoors. We wanted a glassed-in area projecting out over a beautiful kind of an overview of all those grounds, And there would be a stream that would actually bubble up inside like a fountain and then would flow out underneath the wall. And the wall would come down right almost to the level of the water and the stream would flow out from indoors and on down and across and of course come up underground and just keep flowing circuitously and this lovely beautiful stream would be a really gorgeous feature of that girl's dormitory. Well, we didn't succeed in going together or or to put in the a kind of a solarium with a stream there. But the stream was built, many of you in this room have perhaps been there on that campus, you've seen it, you know how absolutely lovely it is. Do you know the last chapters of the book of Ezekiel describe that because when Jesus Christ comes, remember that this is after the tribulation, after the heavenly signs, and after all the monstrous plagues of the day of the Lord, after the trumpet plagues, and after the seven last plagues, And the oceans and the streams of this world, including the Dead Sea and the Salt Sea and the eastern Mediterranean, yes, and including Lake Tahoe and Lake Palestine, are going to look like black pudding, and they're going to stink like a dead horse, because God says they're going to be blood. This world is going to be uninhabitable, but God says that He is going to open up by cleaving the Mount of Olives. And in both directions, flowing east and west, is going to come sky-blue waters, rushing out in a mighty stream that becomes a river, and he describes walking out about a quarter of a mile, and it comes to his ankles, and a quarter of a mile, and it comes to his knees, and a quarter of a mile, and it comes to his waist, and then about a half a mile, it comes to his lip, and he could not pass over. And you read that in the book of Ezekiel, the last eight chapters or so, about a mighty river, and it's going to be the healing of the waters of the earth, and it says that He will cause all of these trees to give their fruits throughout the seasons, and these will be the health of the nations. And it talks about fruit trees, and nut trees, and trees of all kinds. And wherever the waters flow, the waters they touch will live, and the fish will begin to live, and all the microorganisms, and all the birds, and the beauty of the ecosphere will be restored. Over that site will be God's throne. Think of this. The throne of God, the very platform that Ezekiel saw, the translucent sea of glass comes down from heaven, sits atop a mountain that is split in two, is there with Christ like burning suns in his brilliance, and flowing with a mighty roar is the biggest artesian well in the history of the world, of sky blue living waters think of the think of the spiritual type not only are they physically going to heal the nations and physically heal the waters and physically heal the birds and the fish but he talks about let anyone who comes unto him experience this living water out of his belly shall flow living water rivers of living water and so on it is a type of god's holy spirit flowing out from mount zion from Jerusalem to all of the world. It's a beautiful picture that Ezekiel paints. Is it all metaphor? I don't think so because he becomes so literal with it. It isn't just metaphor and figurative, it's actually the beginning of the healing of the ecosystem of this earth. Now, in this context, after that great earthquake, and as Christ's throne is established there, and he begins to rule this earth, notice what happens as a result of that earthquake and the drying up of the eastern Mediterranean and the Nile River and perhaps the Bosporus Dardanelles. There shall be a highway, verse 16, for the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria like as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. In another prophecy he actually says that that great exodus of returning captives is going to obliterate from history and obliterate from memory the previous exodus out of Egypt, so that in in succeeding generations, they will no longer talk about the God who brought our forefathers out of Egypt, but the God who brought our forefathers out of Assyria. It'll be the new exodus that the great-great-great-great-grandchildren of you and I will be talking about in the millennium. When you look at the picture of the coming government of Almighty God, when you look at the incredible complexity Physically, ecologically, economically, politically, sociologically, and you apply all these scriptures literally to the earth on which we reside, it becomes a little more realistic than just a pie in the sky. Jesus will come and all will be well. Let's turn over to the seventh chapter of Daniel to conclude here. Daniel, the seventh chapter. Here is a great prophecy that four different times culminates in the second coming of Jesus Christ and the establishment of God's government on this earth. Beginning to read in verse 9, Daniel said, I beheld till the thrones were cast down. What is God concerned with? What is he dealing with? What have we been reading here? He's concerned with the leaders of his people. To whom did he send his prophets of old? Who did Daniel talk to? Nebuchadnezzar and three other kings, Nabonidus and Belshazzar. To whom did Ezekiel go? To whom did Isaiah go? To whom did Jesus Christ go? Before whom did Paul testify? But Agrippa, and perhaps in his last testimony, before Nero himself. To whom were God's prophets always sent? To those who bore the responsibility for the wretchedness of God's people. When there was a righteous king, the nation followed what the king said, and the nation was blessed. Look at Josiah's great reform, the second Passover, the blessings of God. Look at Solomon's great kingdom when he was younger and obeying God as opposed to when he got old and started building tempietos for the gods of all of his 1,000 women. Then look at a bad, evil king like Manasseh and of the horrifying wars and the suffering, the terrible diseases, the terrible everything. I mean, captivity after captivity that came upon God's people as a direct result of a rotten, filthy, evil ruler that had the reins of government in his hands. The issue has always been government. It says here, I beheld till thrones were cast down. It doesn't say church pews. It doesn't say H.R. block tax uh, offices. It says thrones, heads of state, emperors, presidents, prime ministers, premiers, And the Ancient of Days did sit whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame. You read of that in Ezekiel 1 or Ezekiel 10 and Isaiah 6. And his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands, meaning millions, ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. This is eventually and over a period of a hundred years. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. I beheld then because of the voice and the great words which the horn spake. That was the little horn, of course, that overthrew the other three, and I've broken in the middle of the prophecy. I beheld even till the beast was slain. We read of that, we've read of it in this uh, pulpit many a time in sermons in the 19th chapter of Revelation where Christ takes the beast and the false prophet and actually administers the death penalty to them himself, cast them over into Gehenna, which is going to be reignited, and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the creatures, they had their dominions, and this is government. They had their rule, their dominion, their government taken away, yet their lives were prolonged, interesting. We've never really zeroed in on that. You maybe haven't really wondered because we've always talked about what happens to the beast and what happens to the false prophet. But what about the kings of those ten nations? The others apparently are to be alive long enough for Christ to give them a witness and maybe, just maybe, they will have an opportunity to repent. It doesn't say. But their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came of the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days. Now this is obviously God the Father, and they brought Him near before Him. So that has got to be in heaven, and the vision is in heaven even though the 22nd chapter of the book of Revelation shows that eventually at the end of the millennium and the great white throne judgment, the throne of God himself, of the Lamb and God the Father, will be on this earth. Christ is preparing this earth for 1,000, actually in 100 years, for the throne of God the Father, and God the Father will be here, and this will be the headquarters of the entirety of the universe. And there was given unto him dominion, this is Christ, We read of him before, Emmanuel, God with us, wonderful counselor. The government shall be on his shoulder, and he'll inherit the throne of his father David. And glory and a kingdom that all people, not angels, not beings in heaven, people, people in Smith County, people in Georgia and Alabama, California, people, nations and languages, Africa, Central and South America, Bangladesh, Asia, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. No more relics, no more shattered columns, no more destroyed old buildings, no more interesting things to take your vacation and take a camera along and to see a once-proud empire. This one will never collapse. This one will never fall. He said, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. And I came near unto one of them that stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me, and made me know the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings. They were the four successive world-ruling empires that shall arise out of the earth. But, he goes right to the end of the matter, the saints of the Most High, what are you, Oh, you're nobody, you're just somebody sitting in here in a building in East Texas, Lake Palestine, near Tyler, Texas. Or are you a saint, and are you a saint of the Most High? Does he know your name, first, middle, and last? Does he know every hair on your head? Does he know every thought in your heart? Does he see through the roof of our bathrooms and our bedrooms? as they see into our closets, the closets of our lives, as well as the closets of our homes. Are we the saints? Well, then, do we believe in a betty By story? Even so, come Lord Jesus. We sing our songs, we dutifully come to church, and we go home. But isn't it all kind of a mystery? It's just something way off. The Catholics talk about the end of the world, and others talk about, when I fly away, or she passed away. But this literal, tangible, governing, ruling on this earth from a great capital with a gorgeous throne astride a huge, big river glowing with the light of the heavens, with Christ glowing like the sun, sitting atop it like an ensign, a beacon that shines over all nations. Millions of crying, weeping refugees struggling, carrying their little possessions in a baby buggy, trying to get there to learn of His ways. The reality of the government of God, of the second coming of Christ. It escapes most people. They've never experienced it in their minds and their hearts. They've never believed it, literally. They just believe it metamorphically, or metaphorically, I should say, or or they believe it because they've written it down in a notepad, or they've underlined it in their Bible. They believe it kind of philosophically, but, but they haven't seen it. They haven't experienced it in their minds and their hearts. The saints of the Most High shall take... The kingdom! You know, I'll be willing, if I were a betting man and I'm not, to wager that there's some little old ladies over 80 years of age in the Church of God International who, if you could take them in their wheelchairs and wheel them in and take George Bush and grab him by the nap of his neck and throw him out of the White House and put that lady in the Oval Office do a whole lot better job than he would in running this country but only if you gave her the power. If you gave her the power, that little widow lady in a wheelchair, if she has God's spirit, if she knows God's word, if she knows that it's wrong to kill and wrong to steal, and all the Ten Commandments should not be broken, would do a better job than anyone that's ever run for president of this great country. I believe that. I happen to know that that is true. The saints of the Most High, 80, 90, 60 or newly baptized at age 23 doesn't matter. Shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever even forever and ever. My father used to preach sermons years ago, how would Jesus vote for president? And that led me to make a statement that I've repeated many a time, that only when I see a man that has the wisdom of Solomon, the patience of Job, the love, forgiveness, and mercy of Jesus Christ, and maybe the brain of a Henry Kissinger, and a lot of other qualities beside, would I vote for him? But the point is, I don't have to vote for my coming king. The election has already been held. The vote has already been counted because there was no vote to it. It's merely been decided. And us believing it doesn't change anything. Whether people accept it doesn't make any difference. No one has to get out and work for him. We don't have to wear buttons and badges. We don't have to hold conventions. We don't have to go standing around making sounds like a dumb animal or a parakeet screaming at a convention to try to get our favorite son elected. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is going to rule this earth with a rod of iron, and it's going to take a rod of iron to set it right. I want to have a part in that. I want to be one of the saints of the Most High. I think you do too. Even so, come, Lord Jesus.